Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, October 14th, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, what the White House sees coming for COVID this winter from NPR News. And no hot dogs in the dugout? What would Babe Ruth say from the New York Times? Plus, new patient guidelines for breast cancer screening and diagnosis from PR Newswire. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. What the White House sees coming for COVID this winter by Mary Louise Kelly, Patrick Jaron Watananan, and Gabe O'Connor from NPR News. The U.S. should prepare for a spike in COVID cases this winter as more people gather indoors and infections already begin to rise in Europe, White House COVID-19 response coordinator Ashish Jha says. The warning echoes that of some other experts who anticipate a rise in cases in the coming months, while other modeling suggests that infections will recede in the near future. We are seeing this increase in Europe, and Europe tends to precede us by about four to six weeks, Ja told NPR, and so it stands to reason that as we get into November, December, maybe January, we are going to see an increase in infections across much of the country, he said. Ja said the extent of any surge would come down to a number of factors, namely the precautions people take and the vaccination rates. While updated booster shots designed to target the Omicron variants are now widely available, the CDC estimates only about 13 to 15 million people have already gotten one, compared to the more than 200 million adults in the U.S. who have received their primary series of vaccinations. Ja spoke to NPR about COVID subvariants, vaccine uptake, and battling pandemic fatigue. The interview highlights on the Omicron subvariants that the White House is tracking. There are at least three subvariants that we're tracking very, very closely, all of which appear to have a lot more immune escape. Now, the good news about them is while they seem to do a better job of escaping immunity, they are derived from BA5 or BA2, its closely related cousin. And the new vaccines we have, which protect you against BA5, should really continue to work really quite well against these new variants. So we don't know all the details. Obviously, we're studying that right now. One more reason for people to go out and get this new bivalent vaccine. On the low uptake on the new bivalent shots so far. We expected this to ramp up, so these new vaccines became available in early September, right around Labor Day. And just like the annual flu shot, which people tend to get mostly in October and November, and I think the reason is that's when the weather starts getting colder and people start thinking about the holidays. And it triggers people to sort of realize, yeah, they should probably get the flu shot before they start gathering. My sense is something similar is happening with COVID vaccines. We've seen a pickup. And my expectation is that as the rest of October goes along, and as we get into November, you're going to see a lot more Americans getting this new vaccine. On when people should get the booster. I've been recommending to all my family and friends that they get it before Halloween. I mean, go get it now. And the reason is, if you get it before Halloween, you're going to have a really high degree of protection, 
as you get into Thanksgiving, as you get into the holidays. You know, you can't time these things too tightly. So in general, my recommendation is go get it, go get it soon, and certainly get it before Halloween. On battling fatigue over pandemic safety measures. I would say I understand the fatigue. You know, we're now at a point where COVID doesn't have to rule our lives. We don't have to take extraordinary precautions the way we did two years ago or even a year ago. And we're at a point where, for a majority of Americans, this is now a once-a-year shot. You know, I've gotten a flu shot yearly for 20-some-odd years. It's not a big deal. I go get my flu shot every fall, and it helps protect me in the fall and winter. And we're in a similar position with COVID in terms of the vaccine, where, for a majority of Americans, it's a once-a-year shot. Now, let me be very clear, for some high-risk people, I think about my elderly parents who are in their 80s, they might need a shot more than once a year. They might need one again in the spring. But for a majority of people, we're at a point where it's a once-a-year shot. It's not that inconvenient, not that big a deal, and it's a great way to protect yourself. Up next, No Hot Dogs in the Clubhouse? What Would Babe Ruth Say? by Adam Elder from the New York Times. Changing baseball one snack at a time. With each team required to have a dietitian on staff, the days of pizza, hot dogs, and nachos are largely over. Throughout baseball's long history, fans at games have typically drunk beer while snacking on peanuts and hot dogs. Behind the scenes, things weren't much different. The game's athletes were often fueled by pizza, hot dogs, and nachos in the clubhouse, and all-you-can-chew quantities of bubblegum and sunflower seeds in the dugout. But as the game has become increasingly scientific, so has the baseball diet. Spare a thought for the Philadelphia Phillies' old nacho cheese pump, as they and several other teams got rid of that crowd-pleaser. Of course, some traditions are harder to abandon. The Atlanta Braves got rid of their soft-serve ice cream machine, which was a good luck charm of sorts during their run to last year's World Series title. But a new machine was recently installed in the clubhouse by popular demand. After the 162-game grind of the regular season ended, Major League Baseball dived right into its postseason, which started last Friday and will extend into November. To help players get through such a long season, many teams have replaced pre-game junk food with macronutrient-rich meals, dugout candy with fruit, jerky, kind bars, honey stinger waffles, or sugar-free gum, and water and Gatorade coolers with bespoke hydration drinks tailored to each player's sodium sweat loss. Junk food and corn syrup do not provide quality nutrients for adequate recovery, explained Alexa Scully, the Phillies' dietitian who oversees a dugout menu of almonds, dried mango, beef jerky, string cheese, and peanut butter pretzels. When carbs are mixed with a little bit of fat, fiber, or protein, this helps blood glucose from spiking and provides sustainable energy over a longer period of time, she said. Scully isn't alone in this. Everything in our clubhouse is geared toward helping promote recovery and reduce inflammation, said Drew Weisberg, the Yankees' dietitian. We tried to stick to snacks and food with good nutrition, he said. Until recently, none of this was in the baseball vernacular. The stories of Babe Ruth asking fans for hot dogs between doubleheaders were probably apocryphal, 
though for much of the sport's history, there wasn't anything at all in dugouts besides chewing tobacco, not even water. According to Jacob Pomrenke, editorial director at the Society for American Baseball Research, Philip Wrigley, the longtime owner of the Chicago Cubs, used to supply his players with his company's chewing gum, but this wasn't widespread. And because clubhouses were often far from the field at old ballparks, players didn't bring much into the dugout. It was still considered unusual in the 1960s when Ron Santo of the Cubs, a diabetic, brought a candy bar and orange juice into the dugout. Gradually, in-game eating and drinking caught on. By the 1980s, it was common to see candy wrappers and empty Gatorade cups strewn across dugout floors in the aftermath of a game. David Sunflower seeds were once supplied free to teams, and Pombrenki said MLB had gum deals with Double Bubble and Bazooka until a few years ago. Baseball's league-wide turn toward health accelerated in 2017. The collective bargaining agreement reached in the previous winter between the league and the players' union required, for the first time, that teams hire full-time chefs and dietitians. The clubs use their experts differently, and while some have taken a strict approach, others have done it gradually. It's not easy to change a player's game-day eating routines, which were often formed in college cafeterias or while schlepping around the minor leagues on tiny salaries. It takes a long time to create a new habit, said Kara Lynch, the Minnesota Twins dietitian. A player may prefer goldfish instead of kale salad. It's about pairing the goldfish with a little bit of color rather than saying you can only have kale salad. Or if a player wants to have Teddy Graham's and Lind chocolates, I won't say no. You can make those foods work, she said. If we don't have brownies or cookies, they're going to get it on their own, she added. We also have to keep the coaches happy, she said. Yankees pitcher Luis Severino used to regularly indulge in fried chicken and most anything fried, he said. He also could not bring himself to eat anything for many hours before a start. But injuries and a desire to pitch deeper into games led Severino to work closer with Weisberg. These days, Severino eats a chicken salad early in the day, a peanut butter and almond milk shake several hours before his start, and a banana or honey stinger chews between innings in the dugout. Before I started working with Drew, I'd be out of energy after the fourth inning, Severino said. After this, I feel great. My body recovers faster after a long inning, he said. Severino isn't the only one on the team who eats well. He noted that Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, Anthony Rizzo, and others are mindful of what's best for their body. One common trick that Weisberg and other teams' nutrition experts employ is to place healthy snacks in the same strategic, high-traffic locations in dugouts and clubhouses every time, both at home and on the road. This makes it easier for players to eat what's good for them than to seek out junk. But even as baseball catches up with other sports, it has a knack for staying rooted in the past. Tobacco use persists even after the league banned it in 2016. Tubs of double bubble are still a staple in dugouts, though the sugar-free version is often nearby. Seeds, too. In the aftermath of a bench-clearing brawl between the Angels and Mariners this summer, pitcher Rizel Iglesias reached for the nearest thing to throw toward the opponent's dugout in anger, a bucket of sunflower seeds. Sunflower seeds and gum is the universal language of baseball, Weisberg said. 
For all the countries represented on our team, you'll have guys from everywhere chewing gum or eating seeds every game, he said. Team experts agree that these items will probably always be around. That's okay with them. If we have sugar out on the field, it's a quick source of energy, said Lynch of the Twins. It limits how much muscle they're breaking down. Some of what we term old traditions, we can actually look at the positive properties of it, Lynch said. Weisberg said, I wouldn't even call gum and seeds junk food. It's a rhythm type thing that helps carry them through the game, he said. Baseball season is such a grind, dietitians say, that bad diets will catch up to players eventually. But once they experience the performance benefits of a good diet and see the potential to lengthen their career, they become more open to the acquired tastes of healthier food. Still, some players simply don't care to eat healthily. Others fall back on old habits. When a player is in a slump, he will sometimes seek that tobacco or junk food that he has found comfort or superstition in before. Inevitably, if star athletes want something, they will find a way to get it without too much effort. For the team nutritionists and dietitians, the important thing is building relationships, sometimes one vegetable at a time. Some guys will say no to making any changes to their diet, and that's okay, Scully of the Phillies said. For those guys, it's important to make sure they know you support them and are there if they decide to change their mind. Sometimes the guys who you think will never come around actually do, and it's always a cool thing to be a part of, she said. Up next, NCCN publishes new patient guidelines for breast cancer screening and diagnosis, emphasizing annual mammograms for all average-risk women over age 40. From PR Newswire. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network, or NCCN, published new guidelines for patients' breast cancer screening and diagnosis several months ago to help people understand their personal risk for breast cancer, when they should begin screening, and how often to screen in order to detect cancer earlier for more treatment options and better outcomes. With this information, they are equipped to have more informed conversations with their health care providers and be active decision makers in their long-term health. There are many often conflicting recommendations surrounding breast cancer screening, which causes a lot of confusion and apprehension, said Therese Bevers, M.D., professor of clinical cancer prevention at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and the chair of the NCCN Guidelines Panel for Breast Cancer Screening and Diagnosis. These are the latest evidence-based guidelines from experts in the field of breast cancer screening and diagnosis from more than two dozen leading cancer centers in the United States, she said. Everyone with breasts carries some risk of breast cancer, so the key is to know your risk, said Dr. Bevers. Most women with average risk should get screened every year, beginning at age 40. But if there are additional risk factors present, a provider might recommend an earlier start, Bevers said. According to the guidelines, women should undergo a risk assessment for developing breast cancer starting at age 25. Increased risk is based on a number of factors, including age and family history of certain cancers, including ovarian and pancreatic cancer, not just breast cancer. And regular screening and breast exams are safe and important for those who are pregnant or breastfeeding, Dr. Bevers added. A lot of women think they need to put this on hold, but we can shield the belly and the radiation is a very low dose and targeted. It's important to keep up with screenings, 
especially for women whose first pregnancy is happening when they are 40 or older, she said. Annual mammography screening beginning at age 40 is associated with the highest mortality reduction for average risk women, said Mark Helvey, MD, Professor Active Emeritus, Department of Radiology at the University of Michigan, and a member of the NCCN Guidelines Panel for Breast Cancer Screening and Diagnosis. Regular screening and breast exams help find breast cancer at its earliest, most treatable stages. Having a mammogram at infrequent or irregular intervals limits its effectiveness. For women at increased risk, the NCCN guidelines recommend starting screening earlier and often include breast MRI in addition to mammography, he said. Up next, why dates and times seem to lose their meaning. The COVID-19 pandemic and other traumatic events can cause days to blur, a sign of stress, by Josh Zumbrun from the Wall Street Journal. The dates on the calendar and the time on a clock are some of the most ubiquitous and easily understood numbers in our lives. And yet, over the past two years, many Americans have felt time blur. They lose track of the day or hour, think more or less, time has elapsed than actually has, and can't place exactly when a traumatic event actually happened. It isn't their imagination. Psychology has a term for it, temporal disintegration, when the present seems disconnected from the continuity of time, and it plays an important role in how we perceive and respond to trauma. One of the most fundamental and important and underlying principles so critical to our ability to function is we have a sense of the flow of time said Allison Holman, a professor of psychological science at the University of California, Irvine. She has recently published research showing a majority of Americans likely experienced at least some temporal disintegration during the pandemic era. That finding, she said, could hamper recovery from the pandemic. When people have a really disrupted sense of time, they have a hard time moving on. They have a hard time focusing on getting back into their lives and rebuilding their sense of future, she said. It's normal to be focused on the present to the exclusion of the past and future, but if you frequently don't know what day of the week it is or can't recall if something important in your life happened a day, a month, or a year ago, or feel like the past and future have disappeared, then a more serious time warp might be at work. In an August paper for the journal Psychological Trauma, Dr. Holman and co-authors reported on a series of questions they asked a 5,661-person panel, such as to what extent they had been focused on the present moment. 76.9% said they had felt that way sometimes, felt unsure about what time or day it was, 46%, or found yourself forgetting what just happened or feeling unclear about the order of events you just experienced, 35%. The researchers combined the responses to create an index of how acutely someone experienced blurred time. They found that more than half of Americans experienced most of these distortions, at least sometimes during the pandemic. Ian Phillips, a professor of philosophy and psychology at Johns Hopkins University, has looked at some unusual studies to quantify time blurring. In 1962, French spelunker Michel Seffray spent 60 days in a cave without sunlight, clocks, or watches. He would call his research partners on the surface via a landline at meals 
before sleeping and upon waking, so they could track his time without him knowing. After some time, he would attempt to count to 120, one second at a time. It took him five minutes. When his experiment concluded after 60 days, he thought only 35 days had passed. In other words, his sense of time completely disintegrated. He repeated the experiment 10 years later with a seven-month stretch and not only lost his sense of time again, but succumbed to severe depression. Or consider a particularly wild experiment from 1961. People were asked to estimate a five-second interval while on a platform that was either being pushed toward or away from a precipice. Those being hurled toward the edge experienced a 20% slowing in time versus those being pushed away. An important finding of this research is that time blurring is correlated with stress. Stanford University psychology professor Philip Zimbardo developed what became known as the Zimbardo Time Perspective Inventory, consisting of about five dozen questions on attitudes and perceptions of the past, present, and future. Studies of the Zimbardo Time Perspective Inventory show that a balanced time perspective, neither stuck in the past nor fatalistic about the future, contributes strongly to well-being. Dr. Phillips said it's really hard to disentangle. Does time blurring cause people to have problems with mental health, or is it just correlated with that, he said. While pursuing her Ph.D. in 1993, Dr. Holman had considered an experimental study on time, but the sort of experiments approved by the ethics panel, such as asking subjects to give a speech or stick their hand in especially cold water, didn't closely resemble trauma. Then she met with a colleague who had just encountered one of a series of firestorms that swept through Laguna Beach and Malibu, California that year, destroying hundreds of homes and displacing the residents. The Los Angeles Times reported a resident saying of the firestorms, This is hell, dude. I'm expecting to see Satan come out any time now. Dr. Holman immediately surveyed the displaced residents within 36 hours of evacuation. After months of following up, she and her colleague Roxanne Cohen-Silver concluded that those who experienced the most severe temporal disintegration in the immediate aftermath of the fires experienced the highest distress a year later. In other words, extreme time blurring might be a warning sign that someone is going through a stressful event, COVID, wildfires, or any sort of grief or disruption to life, risks being traumatized by it a long time later, and struggling to move on. What to do? Psychologists have developed time perspective therapies, a type of talk therapy, not medication-based, that seems to help at least some people. Dr. Phillips of Johns Hopkins initially approached the study of time as a philosopher, however, and suggests some simple advice for those losing their sense of time. If you're inclined to report that time is dragging, my life is vanishing, maybe the thing to do is simply try to inject more distinctive or unique experiences into it. Then there's more in your story to tell, and it's not slipping through your fingers, he said. Up next, processed meat, a cancer risk, from Consumer Reports on Health. Nitrates and nitrites are chemicals used as preservatives and color additives in processed meats, such as ham, bacon, sausage, hot dogs, and cold cuts. In a study published this year, 
people who consumed the most nitrates and nitrites had a 58% higher risk for prostate cancer and a 24% higher risk for breast cancer compared with those who consumed the least. Researchers used food questionnaires and tracked the health of more than 100,000 midlife and older French women and men for an average of 6.7 years. Researchers say these chemicals may increase cancer risk by contributing to the formation of DNA-damaging compounds. And the source is the International Journal of Epidemiology. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.